This week, Out in the Bay brings you a conversation with poet Pamela Sneed. It first aired in late 2020, during the height of the COVID pandemic. Considering the state of the world, this conversation remains relevant. Enjoy. Welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen. This week, New York-based poet, writer, performer, visual artist, and professor Pamela Sneed. She joins us to discuss her new memoir, Funeral Diva. It's a powerful collection of poems and essays described as a coming of age in New York City during the late 1980s. The book is not only about her life as a proud Black lesbian or about the impact of the AIDS epidemic on Black queer life. It's also a courageous commentary about today's pandemic, divisive politics, and pervasive social inequities. Funeral Diva, published by San Francisco City Lights in October, has received widespread praise, including from some heavy hitters in the literature world. Claudia Rankin, poet and author of Citizen, an American lyric, calls Funeral Diva a notable achievement traveling from youth to adulthood, a harrowing account of how Sneed transforms violence and pain into an artist's life. And Parul Seagal, the New York Times book critic, describes the strength of the Funeral Diva collection as being, quote, in its abundance, its desire for language to stir body as well as mind. Pamela Sneed has published multiple collections of poetry and nonfiction, including Imagine Being More Afraid of Freedom and Slavery, Kong and Other Works, and Sweet Dreams. Her work is included in Nikki Giovanni's The 100 Best African American Poems, and she was nominated for two Pushcart Prizes in poetry in 2018. She's also a mentor to young writers, a professor and powerful performer, and she's also a visual artist. She painted the cover art for Funeral Diva. Welcome, Pamela Sneed. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for spending some time here on Out in the Bay. Could you start off with a reading from your book? What would you like to start with? Um, Never Again. At the end of every Holocaust film I've seen, There are not that many. They show real-life survivors, and the lines are, never again. And some of us, like me, stare into these films, down long tunnels of history, wondering how it could have ever happened at all, that a leader and his minions could be so toxic, so poisonous, you turn against your neighbors, that you could be so oblivious, brainwashed, scared, desperate to be superior or to survive, you'd do anything or almost. They say never again, but it is again. As I look at the deportations, roundups, I'm reminded of Idi Amin when he cast out foreigners, and Forrest Whitaker in the film The Last King of Scotland when he played him, and to see it is again. At rallies, at protests, they show the coat hangers and crude instruments women were forced to use in back alley abortions. We say never again, but taking away women's choices and planned parenthood, it, it, it is again. Today started out in an argument with a so-called fan who didn't understand why I mentioned race so much in my new book, and that white man is not the first, a black woman asked too. I wanted to scream, hello, haven't you seen the news? Didn't you see what happened to Stephon Clark, unarmed and shot in the back six times by police, and no one even cares what happens to women, black lesbians or lesbians of color? There's no public outcry. A student once wrote to me in an academic paper that a parent forced her to stop playing sports because they said sports made her more of a dyke. It murdered my student inside because she was an athlete. Yeah, so the white guy I argued with about my book said he was just giving me some good advice from his experience as an empath. 
I said, I don't need your advice. I have reasons for talking about race and gender in the interpersonal. He said he was just trying to help me. I'll offer this non sequitur. Winnie Mandela died a few years ago. She had a great impact on me. I read she was nobility, but then, of course, the difference between her and say how Princess Diana was treated, everyone accepted and loved Diana's silent, passive status. She was allowed to be gorgeous. No one ever associated with her that dirty colonial stain. There are moments in that recent Winnie Mandela a documentary that stand out to me where she buried her face in her hands and screamed out, as I have so many times, I've been betrayed. The other moment was when she said she was the only ANC member brought to TRC and made to testify, and that Nelson Mandela forgave a nation, but he could never forgive her. I think what was done to Winnie is also done to other Black women and working artists, Black women fighting to give language resistance, but it only matters when a celebrity says or does it. At Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, after you've passed the door of no return, there is a plaque donated to the castle by the Black tribal elders. It reads, may we never sell ourselves into slavery again, but it is again. Very nice. Thank you. And powerful. Um, it's interesting that you uh, ended right there with Cape Coast Castle, because um, as I started reading the book this past week, uh, that's the first chapter is history with a with a line through it, through the word history. Mm -hmm. um, I can ask you about that, too. But you talk about going to Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, which is uh, a place where there's slave forts all along the coast of West Africa. And and this particularly ch touched me, this part where you talk about um Afterwards, if I, if you don't mind, I'll read a, a small part from this. Sure. Your guide, Joshua, weeks after going to Cape Coast, took you to an African village for a naming ceremony to receive my African name. It might have been a heist and a hoax gone wrong because I was supposed to receive my name in a little ceremony, pay and go. But when they dressed me up in African garb and the village gathered around me and the village priestess said, Thank you, God, for returning our daughter from across the ocean and said to me, you are home now. You will never be a stranger and sleep in a hotel again. Something in me like rock split apart. I started to cry, as did she, and we couldn't stop. I know Mandela used to do that. Embrace African-Americans in a simple gesture. He extended his arms and said, welcome home. And that embrace could make men weep. I do believe, contrary to all intellectual beliefs, there is something spiritual in returning. You know, that's the first... <laughs> I started to read that, and that brought some tears to my eyes. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot in this book that is powerful. Anyway, Cape Coast, can you tell me anything more about that uh, feeling of coming home? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know how to like sort of describe it. Um, you know, because it doesn't speak to everyone. You know what I mean? But it is like for me. Um, it was powerful. Um, I mean, you know, talking about it, I think you get into the spiritual realm and that's a difficult realm to get into because it's like whether or not you believe or don't believe, do you believe in spirits? Do you believe in ancestors? You know, but um, I mean, I can't say I was like that convinced, but when I went there, I think it changed me forever. Like I could feel them, you know. You mentioned towards the end of that chapter or somewhere in there that you have like, you know, this is such a big moment for you. You have your pre-Ghana and your post-Ghana. That's like a dividing line in your life. Yeah. 
So um, tell us about Funeral Diva. How did you get that name and how did you choose that name for the name of this book? Um, well, basically it comes from, um, what is it, you know, the AIDS era and um, and just going to tons of funerals every day of my friends, of artists, of poets, and um, and always being asked to kind of like memorialize them. And, um, and then, you know, and I always wore these outfits and, you know, and I had like, you know, a personality for each, you know, for each thing that I went to. And so really, so then it was kind of like a wry, you know, tongue in cheek kind of, you know, thing of like, okay, I became like a funeral diva. Yeah. What kind of outfits did you wear? Can you describe it? Well, like for Craig Harris, I remember wearing like a huge round hat, like it was orange and it had blue in the middle. And um, it was very like 50s, like diva, it looked like an umbrella. (laughs) And I think you make a reference to it in that poem, Funeral Diva, about it being a sort of a throwback or a nod to um, the hats that black women would wear to church and you uh, there was i think a mention of an earlier funeral perhaps in your family where the where a lot of the uh, family members showed up with different hats to uh, give tribute to their uh the person who had passed i can't remember who it was yeah you it's my grandmother yeah you're a good reader you remember all those things but yeah it was sort of like when she died all of her grandchildren wore the hats of her collection you know because she was a church woman and so, um, and, and Craig Harris, who I wore the, the hat for was like such a big diva and he smoked like long Virginia slim cigarettes. So I just thought, oh, okay. Craig would love me to be, you know, a diva Oops, to wear something fashionable. And I mean, you know, that's like, you know, that's funerals too. I mean, you have an opportunity to kind of like memorialize people in what you wear, you know, not just what you say. And you say that you were in the book that you were you were called on to go to so many funerals during the 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 um, rampant deaths of the late '80s and early '90s, and um, and yet there were a couple of people that who were actually close to you. You couldn't go to theirs, or you you uh, had a hard time visiting. For example, you mentioned Don Reed in the hospital, um, and it just couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I was like traveling at the time and and, um, and I knew that it would be the last time I saw him and I didn't want to remember him, you know, the way that he was. I wanted to remember him as I knew him, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was like, I mean, that was like something that stayed with me for a long time, like sort of like the guilt um, of not going, but it was also about traveling, um, and not really being there, being able to be there for the whole thing. Um, and, um, yeah. And I remember feeling like bad and stuff. And then I remember I had a voice in my head and it said, you know, it's okay if people die, you know? And I remember that was like the first, uh, you know, that was the first thing that kind of like freed me. But it wasn't until later when I was reading Bell Hooks, and I think Bell Hooks said something about she didn't go see a beloved grandmother because she was the one who loved her the most. You know? mm-hmm. So in a way, it was just kind of like, I think it was maybe easier for people who were not closest to him, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there was the irony of like going to all these like, you know, strangers funerals. But then my friend, you know, Donald Wood, um, I wasn't invited to speak. And um, and that was just, you know, really hard for me. Do you know why you weren't invited to speak? I have no idea. You know, I'm sure it was because like the guys were like, okay, enough of this girl. In Funeral Diva, you you not only pay tribute to black queer artists and writers who died from AIDS in the 80s and 90s, you also acknowledge the forgotten or underappreciated role of women during the epidemic, the caretakers and caregivers. And I think actually you mentioned Craig Harris a minute ago. Um, uh, he had a poem asking who will care for our caretakers. And I guess there were a lot of women at that time who died of breast cancer. And that was um, not where people were having their attention focused or society at large, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, that still goes on, you know, that it's just kind of like, I mean, we can talk about AIDS and we can talk about the AIDS era, but still we don't talk about like how cancer has ravaged women, you know, for centuries, you know, and um, yeah. And so I kind of like, every time I talk about AIDS, I also want to talk about cancer. You know, and I mean, it's not absolute. It's like, it's not like just, you know, uh, women die of cancer and men die of AIDS. I mean, you know, women have died of AIDS and, and, and they're primarily the biggest population, you know, worldwide now, you know, black women, you know. You have a piece towards the end called A Tale of Two Pandemics. Yes. Would you like to read a little bit of that or from a little bit of, of Funeral Diva, either one? Um, I don't have it on me because I'm in Massachusetts, but let me see what I can do. Yeah, I just need to pull it up. While you're looking for that, I'm going to re-ID the show. You're hearing Out of the Bay, Queer Radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen speaking with poet, writer, performer, and professor and mentor Pamela Sneed, author of the new book, Funeral Diva, a collection of poems and prose. Okay, here we go. A Tale of Two Pandemics. Speaking of COVID-19, the headline in yesterday's news blared a tale of two pandemics, shocking inequities in the healthcare system. What got me was the use of the word shocking and two. Those of us who lived through the 1980s, early 90s AIDS crisis already knew about the existence of two New Yorks, two 20, 30, 40, 50 Americas, maybe more, depending on age, race, class, citizenship, status, entirely different systems for those who weren't white, straight, middle class. Those of us who saw our brothers, friends, sisters die at the hands of a system that shunned, refused to treat, threw away the unwanted. Still can't forget a gay friend waiting for Medicaid to treat HIV. It was weeks. He got sicker and sicker. I asked what took so long with Medicaid. He said that they're waiting to see if I die first. That wasn't the American that I learned about in elementary school, whom I was instructed to to put my hand over my heart, stand for, and salute. This wasn't the free America we came of. 
People who are LGBTQI already know that there are two Americas, a doctor who kept forcing me to take a pregnancy test even after I insisted and blurted out, I only have sex with women. I saw his scorn still a test he made me pay for. And then those women who were forcibly sterilized had wounds, their life force taken, left dry, barren by doctors who never even stopped to explain, felt entitled to take, scar women's bodies, breast cut off, no options or consolation given. Women who aren't rich and white already know invisible lines you can't cross with no insurance or Medicaid, forced into black markets for drugs, a land of botched care, botched procedures. Black people already know separate doors, separate entrances, treatments, options, existing long after Jim Crow. And I have kept waiting for this moment, this time of medical me too, when those who suffered from botched procedures and the indignities step from shadows speak and name the atrocities committed, medical malpractice. I won't blame all doctors. Some are good, just middlemen like so many in a broken system doing what they can. And I'm grateful for the good ones in this pandemic risking their own lives. But the image of doctors we see in movies and on television who understand a complex problem, pour through medical books and science, read through night under dull lamplight to find a cure, whose eyes weep with concern are mostly false, rare like ones who find a cure and refuse to patent or personally profit. Those days have become a myth. What's replaced them now are businessmen wanting status amongst peers, entry to country clubs and power, gaslighters, hustlers, and actors like Trump. There's a doctor at Mount Sinai, star of his field, charged with drugging and raping his patients. No one believed it, it, believed it until it was proven his victims were only black women. The rest he left alone. Thank you. So after you, you know, lived through the AIDS, the worst of the AIDS epidemic, and now COVID-19, what, um, you know, what do you have to say about the pervasive inequities in health and healthcare that still exist? Well, it's never been, I mean, it's never, ever been addressed, really. You know what I mean? It's a broken system, and it just, it continues to be broken, Um, and that the people who, you know, the people who feel the brunt of it are the most vulnerable. So it's people of color, it's the elderly, you know, it's poor people. I mean, they're talking about like, you know, closing the schools, you know, in terms of like online education and stuff. And that the the kids who have been most affected are poor kids of color, you know, so we always bear the brunt of, of every broken system, mm-hmm. you know. There's a kind of a wide variety of poetry in this book, one that just caught my eye and I had to read it. Sidewalk Rage, just the title intrigued me. So I flipped to that. It's short and short, not sweet, but short. If you wouldn't mind reading that, that'd be great. Okay. I'm not sure why, but it's taken forever for me to to write this poem. I hope to remember all the pieces, but I've developed a new condition one that's come from age. I can no longer take the shit 
I once did. And there's a part of my condition that comes from gentrification and cell phone use, living amidst tech zombies in their general fear and hatred of people of color. My condition is called sidewalk rage. It's kind of like road rage, but it comes when I'm walking down the street and there's some millennial who's just moved into the neighborhood who thinks it's theirs, a little grown-ass white girl who in broad daylight feels a dark presence walking behind her. It's me, minding my own business, and she gets so panicked and paralyzed she stops walking and holds her purse. With my new condition, I yell, if you don't want to live around black people, get the f*** out of the neighborhood. She is shocked. Or in another scenario, you see random white women on their phones standing in the doorway, completely blocking it because, you know, only they exist. And you're like, hello, hello. Yes, all these years, I thought I was still a small town girl. And then suddenly with my sidewalk rage, I'm a bona fide New Yorker, like the ones you've seen on bicycles banging on the hood of a taxi cab that tries to cut them off. My person with sidewalk rage is a character of their own. Where once I was silent, recently recently I confronted a man who was blocking my path, crossing the street. He had his head down and rammed almost into me. I sucked my teeth loud and I shouted, hello, hello. He was so angry I confronted him. He yelled, suck my dick. I started to yell something profane, but I stopped myself. And then I was in the subway going downstairs and a white man rammed into me on the phone. My sidewalk rage kicked in and I thought for a second to sneak behind him and kick him down the stairs. That's my sidewalk rage. I stopped myself. I don't know who this person is in me who would never speak up for herself was always soft and vulnerable, who's been at various times pickpocketed, blasphemed, body slammed, ransacked, ridiculed, who now has a voice, who now lets rage show, who couldn't express herself, has now become all angles and sharp edges. Thank you. Um, That is probably, I don't know since I haven't read the whole book yet, but that seems like, that definitely seems like a raw one. Yeah, people really like that one. I guess it really articulates something that hasn't been articulated enough, you know. Usually gentrification is something that happens to us that we usually don't have a voice in. So I think the idea that I I have a voice and then I'm speaking out and speaking back. Mm -hmm. This time is flying by. I can't believe it. Is there any particular things that you want readers to get out of your book? I mean, I guess like courage, um, you know, hope. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, people are attracted to my work because of of that I speak the unspeakable, you know what I mean? And um, and so I, I hope that that's what I do, that, that freedom, you know, freedom of thought and of mind and of identity comes through the naming. Yeah. And then also, you know, to kind of like um, place back in history all those people that were lost and not really documented. So here was, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, people have been talking to me about film and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, wow, it'd be so interesting to see this as a film, like coming of age in the AIDS era, you know, a black woman moving to New York, you know, and like in basically becoming a poet. And um, like, that's something I couldn't even imagine it as a film because nothing's ever been told like that, you know, and imagine how our world would change 
if these stories that we actually lived, you know, were were told, were accessible, were films. And um, and then I thought, wow, if I can do that, you know what I mean? Like pause it in the public imagination, you know, something that's never been seen. And then it also becomes, it becomes revolutionary, but it also becomes healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? that's great. Uh, speaking of healing, the very you close the book with "Why I Cling to Flowers," which I think is beautiful, and it does it does give some hope. Um, and and in particular, there's a line in there you that it says they say the next two weeks will be the pandemic's greatest peak in America, and obviously you, you didn't write that yesterday. It was early on, right? That first biggest peak in the spring. So uh, yeah, springtime, and now it's um, now here we are again, and hopefully it won't last too much longer. Would you like to read that poem? It's fairly short. Perfect. Why I cling to flowers. I was trying to think of what it means. Why I keep painting and posting flowers and trees in the pandemic. I know they're beautiful, and they assert amidst any chaos and confusion, life on the planet. Every spring, despite climate change, every natural disaster, purple crocus push up out of the ground determined. I'm fascinated by their colors, striped purple, violet, and white, red, blue, and yellow. I love that some humans place wire nets over them to protect their growth so they don't get trampled on. I sometimes think of Brooklyn streets as fashion runways. All the flowers model for humans trying to look their best in various poses, showing off their blooms, each trying to outdo the other with fabulousness, like black women on Easter wearing an array of hats. I love pink, purple, magenta, magnolia blossoms, how each bulb occupies a separate branch, looking and pointing to the sky like an elegant candelabra. I love the daffodils, orange, red, yellow faces, and one daffodil that I pass each day pushes its neck through an opening in a metal garden gate. I identify uh, with how it breaks apart, stands separate, as if refusing confines of a cell. I struggle to understand what this all means. Why I cling to flowers when the news feed reports COVID-19 death after death and fear. They say the pandemic most affects black people, migrant workers, and poor brown people globally, the aged, and those with underlying conditions. And your friends are still dying from AIDS, even when you thought and hoped and prayed the worst was over. They say the next two weeks will be the pandemic's greatest peak in America. People are yelling and fighting in grocery stores on the street. There is so much fear. And the life you knew, good or bad, may never return. But finally talking to my father today, I understood my connection to flowers more. Over the years, anticipating his demise, he's given me messages. He said, you've never given me any problems. You went off and you did things on your own. You did everything by yourself. You decided to go to New York and you never looked back. You made it on your own. Today we are talking about the pandemic. I try to find my family masks and hand sanitizer to send. Touched and impressed by my efforts, my father said, 
you still look out for us. You're a beautiful girl. I'm glad you're my daughter. I'm here for you. And then I understand what it all means. If we can survive, have equipment, means, money, support, conditions to survive, there are also other possibilities. We can heal. Thank you for writing that, and thank you for sharing your poetry with us. That was our conversation with Pamela Sneed, first aired in December 2020, while COVID was hitting full force. Pamela Sneed, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your time and your work. You've been listening to Out in the Bay. My guest this half hour was Pamela Sneed, author of Funeral Diva, a collection of poems and prose. Thank you again, Pamela, so much. Thank you. To learn more about Pamela, check out our website, outinthebay.org, where we'll post links about Pamela, Funeral Diva, and her other works. That's outinthebay.org, where you can also hear this show and past shows and share them with friends. You can also make a donation there to help us keep bringing queer air to your ears. Please consider that, outinthebay.org. Just hit the donate button there. Our theme music was written by Holly Mead. Thanks to Holly and thanks to KALW 91.7 FM and to San Francisco Public Press and its radio station, KSFP. 102.5 FM. Also, thanks to my co-producers, Kendra Klang and Truk Nguyen. If you'd like to join our team, email us at outinthebaysf at gmail.com. Please send comments there, too. We'd love to hear from you. Outinthebaysf at gmail.com. I'm Eric Jansen. Thanks for joining us. Out in the Bay.